0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers, Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it.
1: Welcome back to the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by our two hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you doing today?
2: Great. How are you, Joe?
1: Doing well, doing well, and fresh off of Lollapalooza, it's Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, great to see you as always.
3: Great to see you. Great to hear you. Uh, A little loud, you know, uh, over the weekend sing Metallica, but ready to go, excited.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. you You're our
3: master of puppets, Joe.
1: Yeah, of course. We're we're glad to have you all grown up and here back on the Legal Face Off podcast. We're going to start with the latest, the January sixth hearings and former President. Donald Trump. With that, we bring in friend of the podcast, Patrick Cotter of Greensfelder and former federal prosecutor. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Good to be here. Patrick, what do you make of the fact that the uh, the holdouts uh, seem to be narrowing? You know, initially, we had a lot of pushback famously from uh, people like Steve Bannon and, uh, and others. Uh, just last week, former Trump Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin was interviewed by the committee. Um, former chief of staff Mick Mulvaney. Uh, there are some accounts that put uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, before the committee this week. So, what do you make of this fact that now it seems like resistance to being interviewed by the January 6th committee seems to be waning? Well, I think it's a it's a positive development and a
4: reflection of the progress the committee's made. But I think it needs to be noted that uh, despite the recent Uh, apparent uptick in people cooperating, the cooperation uh, that this committee has gotten from so many people in the former Trump administration is remarkably, remarkably slow, reluctant, and filled with refusals. Uh, Senate committees usually don't proceed like this. You usually don't have dozens and dozens of people refusing uh, to cooperate. So I, I do think that the the trend seems to be turning a little bit. But of course, we don't know the substance of this uh, these supposed uh, interviews. So we don't know whether they're in fact cooperating uh, openly and, and fully or if this is more delay, delay, delay.
2: So, Patrick, many accounts of the parallel DOJ probe into January 6th indicate that investigators are questioning witnesses before a grand jury, including aides to former Vice President Mike Pence and reviewing phone records of key staff, including Mark Meadows. What do you make of these reports?
4: Well, if they're true, uh, and, and, and it's a big if, these are grand jury proceedings, they're supposed to be secret though the witnesses are allowed legally to tell people that they've been before a grand jury, uh, if they're true, it sounds like a, frankly, more typical type of uh, DOJ investigation. Uh, It makes sense to bring in the people around the main players. Uh, That gives you the basis to form good, knowledgeable questions for the main players. So it sounds typical. And again, I I would say it it is surprising to me that it's happening now. It's kind of amazing that DOJ has been looking at this for over a year, and they're only now talking to people around Vice President, former Vice President Pence, who of course was a a significant figure in these events.
3: Is that because of the January 6th hearings? Obviously?
4: I'm always reluctant. Yeah, it's not obvious, but it it, and it may be, as Merrick Garland says, that they're just sort of methodically plotting along. But to just now be calling Mike Pence's people that that, boy, if I had plotted along like that when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, I think I'd have heard from the attorney general. Uh, So I suspect it's been triggered by things outside the DOJ, like the January 6th committee.
3: So you mentioned uh, Attorney General Garland. Um, he was interviewed last week. I think it was NBC, and he said, you know, quite confidently, that we will follow the evidence wherever it leads, and we're not going to be swayed by politics. On the other hand, we know about this DOJ protocol that says that the DOJ will not prosecute a sitting president. What happens if Trump declares uh, his intent to run for the Republican nomination for president? Um, does that same protocol? How does that does that same protocol affect candidates, former presidents? We don't know. Uh, what's your interpretation of that, and how does that factor into Merrick Garland's thinking? Even if there isn't a formal protocol, say you can't go after a former president or a candidate, how does Attorney General Garland have to uh, weigh that? into his decision making in terms of does he want to affect an election right the doj doesn't traditionally want to get involved with candidates they don't want to be seen as affecting elections how does that play into his other statement as i said which is we're going to prosecute whoever is guilty or whoever we think is guilty right well the the protocol you mentioned
4: first about not prosecuting sitting presidents i don't think applies at all it has no relevance Um, However, there is another protocol, and you made reference to that at the end, and that protocol is is longstanding as well. And it essentially holds that the DOJ should not bring prosecutions or make moves in litigation, which are likely to have a significant impact on any uh, current or upcoming election. So obviously that's a broad guideline, uh, because anything you do anywhere could, in theory, someday have an effect on an election. But it's a real it's a real rule that DOJ has lived by. I personally was involved in cases where we had to consider that rule about the timing and whether we go after individuals. Uh, And I think that that is the bigger speed bump for DOJ in this case. If Trump announces in the next month, two months, even three months that he's running for president, Then the DOJ has to decide, are we going to bring a prosecution against a leading candidate of one of the two major parties in the run-up to a presidential election? And remember, federal prosecutions don't end in six months. You bring a prosecution now or in the next six months, it's still going to be going on in the midst of the 2024 election. So it is a huge issue, I think, for DOJ whether they're going to decide that the facts here justify uh, doing something that is almost certainly going to affect a upcoming election. As far as Garland's statements about, you know, we'll go where the evidence leads us, um, with all due respect, I mean, that's that's not actually news. That's, that's a cliche. I mean, that, you know, that if the DOJ made fortune cookies, that would be the fortune. I mean, it is just a cliche. Of course, what are they going to say? No, you know, we only prosecute people we don't like. You know, no, they're going to say we follow the evidence. That's fine. Thank you. That and 295 will get you on the L. It's, it's not really news. I don't think it means anything, to be blunt. Um, I'm not saying that they're not investigating. I'm not even saying they won't prosecute. But I think that the challenges are going to be huge. It's never been done. There's no precedent. We're all lawyers. The last thing lawyers like to do is something without precedent. It's never been done. It would definitely affect an election if he chooses to run. And I see no likelihood that Trump won't announce that he's at least a candidate. So uh, I think there are huge obstacles for DOJ in bringing a criminal case against Trump.
2: So, Patrick, as you alluded to, this is really unlike any other investigation in U.S. history. And as a former federal prosecutor, can you just give us a little glimpse as to what the day-to-day work involved in this type of probe looks like?
4: Sure. This, this is a, a, a case where you're basically working to a plan. And it, these cases are mapped out almost like a military uh, campaign. You have to sit down first, figure out where you're going. You make long lists of what statutes you're going to investigate as having possibly been broken. You're going to make a long list of who your potential witnesses are and what they contribute towards building a case, or at least figuring out what happened. And so day to day, what you're doing is you're working on your list. You've got your work list and you're working, you know, who's the next witness we have to prepare? How are we going to subpoena them? Are they going to cooperate? Who's their lawyer? What are we going to ask them? How do they fit in with the information we've gotten? So it's very methodical. Um, Unlike television, the movies, as you folks know, most lawyering takes place at a desk and you're sitting there going through paper or listening to tapes or staring at your computer screen. So that's what it is going on. There is a campaign that's been mapped out. They're investigating it. They're moving on the campaign. Obviously, they're pivoting when new information comes forward. But it's it should be, and I expect it is. It's very methodical, and day to day, it's not very exciting. But it, it's the way these things get
3: done. Patrick, last question here on Legal Face Off. You know, it struck me that Trump is still. Literally, I, I still—I mean, like over the weekend, still talking about the election being stolen. He told a rally that if he is charged, then uh, he will attract crowds in several cities that will make January 6th look like you know small potatoes. Um, I, I learned everything I, I know about federal prosecutions, not like you from doing, it, but from watching movies. I know the untouchables, for example. You know, Elliot Ness, seemed motivated by Al Capone, sort of keep you know kept poking him. He took that personally. Federal prosecutors, you know, even though they're very much by the book and they follow the law, as we talked about, they're human beings, right? Uh, If you're there investigating this as a federal prosecutor and deciding whether you have enough evidence, ultimately that's the AG's decision to charge Trump, how bothersome is it and how motivating is it to hear the suspect continue to taunt you, basically, out in public before millions of people?
4: Well, I have a little experience with that. I prosecuted John Gotti in New York the last time, the time we won. And uh, he taunted us constantly. He taunted us in the press constantly. And he made promises about what would happen if he got charged again. Let me tell you how it works in. Here's how it works in. Federal prosecutors have to make decisions about whether a case is important enough to bring. And when somebody makes themselves a target and basically says, I am above the law, you can't prosecute me. I dare you to prosecute me. Then they have volunteered. To be prosecuted because they have made it absolutely essential that they be prosecuted. Because if somebody can go on television and have rallies and say they won't dare prosecute me or I'll organize riots, then you've got to prosecute them. They go way up on the list of people mm. who have to be prosecuted. So that's the what Mr. Trump is accomplishing. He's making it much harder for the federal prosecutors to not prosecute him every time he does these things.
3: Mm. Wow. That's
4: amazing insight.
1: Again, that's former federal prosecutor Patrick Cotter of Greensfelder. Patrick, thank you so much for the time and the insight.
4: Thank you. I've enjoyed it.
1: Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's get to abortion laws in Indiana. We have with us Indiana State Senator Shelly Yoder, the 40th District. Senator, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for inviting me. So, Senator, on Saturday during a special session, the Indiana Senate passed Senate Bill 1 by a 26 to 20 vote, which would ban nearly all abortions except in cases of rape, incest, and substantial risk to the life of the mother. And each of those would have significant time restrictions on them. It's now on its way to the House. Can you tell us more about this
5: bill? SB1 barely passed the Senate. It received one extra vote. And if we hadn't have gotten that vote, we would have killed this bill. And the reason why we would have killed this bill is because Hoosiers don't want it. Medical providers don't want it. It's not based on science. It's not based on medicine. And it's not based on what Hoosiers want.
3: Republican Senator Suglick. Sponsor the bill and also introduce a number of restrictions, probably not something you're supportive of. What are your thoughts on those restrictions?
5: I think I need to mention that these amendments that were introduced, nobody took ownership of these amendments. No one said whose amendment it was. And even Senator Glick, when I asked her, Are these your amendments? She said, No, these are amendments that came to me. And when pressed, whose amendments are these, she could not or would not answer. So we went from having a woman to have access to 20 weeks to process a rape or being a victim of incest to processing whether or not she would want to carry this forced pregnancy from 20 weeks down to eight weeks if you're 16 and older
2: and 12 weeks if you're under the age of 16 So, Senator, let's talk for a second about this amendment process that you just flagged was a huge point of dissension um, from both sides um, who are speaking out about the bill in its current form. Nevertheless, the bill went through. Um, Tell us about how we got here. If people and, and legislators on both sides of the aisle objected to it, how did this still get through and how is it on its way to the House now?
5: I think how we got to this place is actually not about abortion or health care access at all. This is about gerrymandering and how Indiana has had the districts drawn to be extreme. So even though the majority, over 70 percent of Hoosiers want women to have access to abortion care, this legislation is being rammed through the legislative process after 50 years of precedent of having access to safe and legal abortion. The state of Indiana is practically putting a total ban on abortion care and Hoosiers don't want it. And it appears that the senators didn't want it. We only have the author of the bill on this bill. I have never seen where there's not even a second author. Not one senator stood up with Senator Glick and said, I support this bill. Not one Hoosier came to testify In support of this bill, what we heard is more like taking toxic medicine. I don't like this bill, but I'll vote for it just because it's the best that we've got. But the Hoosiers who stood up and said we don't want this bill, every single one of them asked us to vote this bill down.
3: Senator, last question here. You know, from where I'm sitting here in Chicago, I could be in Indiana, but 20 minutes. But you probably couldn't get uh, you know farther away in terms of. How our states are reacting post stubs, right? Uh, Illinois has enacted legislation protecting a woman's right to reproductive health care. Uh, just last week, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, announced that they won't be prosecuting by executive order, prosecuting any or helping anyone prosecute those who come to this state to seek abortions. Uh, obviously, the world's literally is watching what we do. Uh, The eyes of other states are on Indiana. How does Indiana compare? How does this legislation compare to other states? We know how it differs from Illinois. And how much are you thinking of how this affects how other states might view this issue?
5: I know that the United States, they're watching. Uh, Each of the states are watching what Indiana is going to do. And what we've done so far is really not good precedent. It's not good policy. This piece of legislation, SB1, it was amended to go even further. What we are now saying, what was amended into the bill is local prosecutors who were duly elected by the constituents, they will not be able to practice in their counties if they make a decision to not prosecute in a way that the attorney general of the state deems Appropriate. So not only are we going against the First Amendment and having Hoosiers' religious liberties and not listening to their protests and voices against this bill, but now we're saying that even their vote locally did not matter, that the Attorney General will ultimately have the final say over duly elected prosecutors county by county in the state of Indiana. So that's what SB1 is is going to do to Indiana. It's bad for women. It's bad for all of Indiana. And we have to continue to fight to defeat this bill. And I hope that other states are paying attention and other people, other citizens are paying attention and making sure that their voices are heard because we are undoing 50 years of precedent in the, in the United States. And in Indiana, we are about to say to women, we do not fully see you As full human and fully human, and we are not going to recognize your full personal autonomy.
1: Again, that's Indiana
6: Senator Shelley Yoder. Senator, thank you so much for the time.
5: Thank you so much.
6: You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale-Hubbell and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers & Partners and World Trademark review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Welcome back to the Legal
1: Faceoff podcast. Moving on to some topics, including social media in the workplace. We bring in Benita Joseph. She's an experienced sexual harassment attorney with Joseph in norensburg Benita, thank you so much for the time today.
7: Thank you so much for having me. So Benita,
2: there's been a lot of press over the past several years about employers monitoring the use and abuse of various social media platforms by their employees. One of the higher profile <laughs> stories that broke a few weeks ago was about Lexi Larson, who was a senior account manager in Denver, Colorado, and shared information on TikTok about a job that she recently started in the tech industry and how her salary went up by $40,000. Shortly after she posted these videos, she was fired by her employer for allegedly triggering security concerns with these posts. Can you tell us more about the situation?
7: Uh, Sure, absolutely. She was um, terminated and um, you know the the employer is stating this was because of safety concerns. they're They're in a bit of a thorny situation because they're they're going to have to prove what the safety concerns were established if she decides to litigate. And you know it's it's extremely uh, risky to terminate an employee for something they might do. You know, our our law is based on what you actually do. Your con, the conduct you actually engage in. So, terminating for someone for some, like, something they might do is, is tricky.
3: Yeah, it seems also uh, a little suspect to call it safety concerns. You know, the safety concerns might be the employer's um, desire about uh, about pay- You know, to keep payroll safe, to keep their income uh, you know low because the safety concern seems a, a little innocuous, but. You know, what are some of the uh, dynamics involved in social media for employers? How difficult is it for employers to monitor social media? And also, what kind of policies should employers put in place to avoid these situations uh, from coming to to litigation?
7: Well, you know, you're you're absolutely right. The, The safety concern is highly suspect. And if when employers stay closer to how the law protects them, they're always on stronger ground. So there are a lot of policies an employer can put in place, um, literally regarding safety, which is not protected, regarding uh, discriminatory comments, which is not protected. But when it comes to an issue about wages, it, it actually is protected. You can discuss your wages in the workplace. So it becomes extremely tricky for an employer to articulate that as the basis for a termination. So they should be very, very careful. As you mentioned, Benita, there's
2: a need to exercise care, especially when you're talking about issues like salary transparency. There's also labor law and First Amendment issues, too. Um, What advice do you have for employers who are trying to lawfully monitor social media? I guess asked another way, when is it a bad idea for employees or for employers to be monitoring their employees' social media at all?
7: Honestly, in, in this day and age, it's never a bad idea to monitor your employees' social media. You always have exposure as an employer when employees make statements that could get you into legal trouble. So you want to monitor uh, for example, if an employee makes a comment that is sexist and they're a manager in the organization, it only makes the case that much stronger if that same employee is, is accused of sexism and the employer is on the hook. So you always want to monitor, um, but of course, you balance that with the First Amendment. But what people come to realize very quickly is the First Amendment is not absolute, and definitely not when it comes to a private employer. So employers have a lot of leeway here to monitor.
3: I mean, what's also tricky uh, and a relatively new area for employers is the degree to which they monitor social media. In the interview process, right, when you're interviewing someone these days, it's natural, of course, to look at social media um, and see what type of information you can learn about a potential candidate, right? Because we all want to know as much as possible about candidates. That could be dangerous for employers, though, right? If you, for example, look at someone's social media and then don't offer them the job, you're opening yourself up to a claim that you did so because of something you learn on social media and perhaps claims of you know discrimination
7: absolutely that is a possibility but What's even more dangerous for employers is if you do not monitor that individual's social media and they become a leader in your organization, and then you find out after the fact that they've made some very inflammatory posts that violate uh, discrimination laws, that violate laws about safety, and, and then you are really in trouble. So, um, you know, you in this day and age, you really do have to be vigilant. And, you know... In reality, if an employer decides not to hire you because of something they've seen on social media, you'll never know. There's more of a risk to the individual to be um, when they're reckless on social media. And it's, it's more prudent for you to be to be deliberate about what you're putting on social media and ask yourself, is this something that is protected? Um, you know, is it and is it worth it? Many times people vent on social media and they express things that, you know, in the heat of the moment, that quite frankly, if an employer were to find out, could get them terminated and the post wasn't even worth it. So people put a lot of times into building themselves up career-wise, getting that great leadership role. You really want to be consistent. Think of the company's brand and what your internal brand is within the company and make sure you're staying true to that.
2: Anita, to what extent um, are your comments different with respect to personal versus company social media handles? Um, sometimes people draw distinctions between their personal Instagram and maybe an account that in the scope of their employment they are asked to run for the company. Um, are your comments any different depending on what type of account it is whether it's personal or professional? So the
7: easy answer is if it's personal, There should be more protection. But in reality, what's truly personal these days, you can post something on your private page that you believe is only staying within your private group. And then someone from your private group uh, resends the same post to a bunch of different people. So your name is attached to it. The statement you made is attached to it. And what you thought was personal slash private is no longer so. So you, again, you really want to be prudent, you want to be smart, you've worked hard to get where you are, and you want to make sure that, ask yourself this, if my employer can get sued uh, for me saying this at work, there's a chance they can get sued and they have an interest in making sure that, um, that I refrain from engaging in this type of communication, which may lead to my termination.
1: Again, that's Benita Joseph with Joseph and Norensburg. Benita, thank you so much for the insight.
7: My pleasure. Thank you for
1: having me. It's time to move on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Face Off podcast. Let's get to our two esteemed guests today. We start with Jacob Sand, partner of Montgomery, McCracken, Walker and Rhodes. You can find out more about his firm at mmwr.com. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us today.
8: Joe, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. I know we got a lot of great topics to cover and I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Let's welcome in our next guest, Kevin O'Connor, founder and principal of the O'Connor Law Firm. You can find more about his firm at koconnorlaw.com. Kevin, thanks for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. And I think these are some good topics, a lot of interesting issues for people to discuss, and I look forward to discussing them.
1: All right. Well, let's dive right in, Rich. Uh, Justice Barrett and Justice Sotomayor still trying to persuade each other.
3: Well, you know, in the wake of, uh, of Dobbs, of course, one of the most divisive, 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 either one, divisive uh, decisions in Supreme Court history, one that we've extensively covered, Tina. Um, you know, you think that it's impossible for people who are on such opposite ends of the legal and philosophical spectrum to get along. But we hear these stories, nonetheless, all the time. We've had the benefit of many Supreme Court clerks on our show over eight or nine years, tell us that they really are very, uh, they do really get along, even though their decisions might be completely adverse. So uh, last week we heard from Justices Sotomayor and Justice Barrett say, again, that they're very close friends, they're very cordial, they're very civil. And while they might not agree uh, uh, legally, a lot of these decisions that they uh, they are they do get along. That she said, I quote, Justice Sotomayor. She said, "I think one of the wonders of being on the Supreme Court is my knowing that every single one of my colleagues is equally passionate about the Constitution. Uh, we may disagree on how to get there, but I accept that as a difference of opinion." That was also contrasted, however, with some words from another justice, Alito, the author of the majority opinion in Dobbs. Tina, who You know, maybe wasn't as conscious as being uh, being nice and civil. Uh, He was he gave a pretty uh, extensive um, discussion where he in many ways mocked the people who were unhappy with Dobbs. He said, for example, that uh, former UK or soon to be former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, who criticized the decision, he said he paid the price. Uh, He also criticized leaders of France and and Canada for criticizing the Dobbs majority decision. Uh, He also said that what really wounded him, being Alito, was when Prince Harry seemed to compare the decision uh, with the Russian attack on Ukraine. So this address was really dripping with sarcasm. And, you know, in my opinion, not the best look for someone, again, who authored a decision that, for the first time, almost in U.S. history, took away a right that was granted. You would think that doing so, he would be a little bit conscious of the effect that that decision still has, and on people across the country. We just talked to a senator about uh, Indiana, how how you know how how that legislation is causing division. Not a great look for the Supreme Court in general for Alito, even though maybe Senator Warren Barrett tried to ease some of those concerns, Tina.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's interesting, Rich, you you really sort of set the stage with this, you know, stark contrast here. I mean, when I was reading about um, Barrett and um, Sotomayor, what um, really struck me was it, made, it reminded me of the relationship that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had with Scalia. Somehow two people, two justices who were on completely different sides of the spectrum were truly best friends and were able to, and enjoyed each other's company and really had each other's backs. And I'm hoping that this really, that people sort of take this message that at least there are some justices on the Supreme Court who are able to break bread and get along, even though they may not agree. Hopefully, um, you know, on a greater level and a bigger level, um, people in this country can see that and are able to conduct themselves in a similar fashion. I find it unfortunate that Justice Alito, um decided to make these comments that he's made. And it's reminiscent of some comments that Justice Thomas has recently made. And I mean, my own humble opinion, I sort of question whether it's really appropriate for a justice to be making these kinds of comments. Um, just because I think that it's a really slippery slope. And I think it, it, it starts getting into some dangerous territory, especially when it comes to what other um, governments and other leaders uh, around the world think when um, justices are talking like this?
3: Yeah. And Kevin, I mean, it, it almost seems like nothing is sacred these days, especially when it comes to the Supreme Court, right? It's a little jarring. I mean, we know about the leak, right? That was really unprecedented that the draft decision of Dobbs was leaked. Um, you know, we, we know that in the wake of COVID, we are listening to oral arguments in real time. Who knows if that will continue. But Supreme Court was always held up as a bastion of secrecy. And there was some you know degree of, of, of mystery about it. Now that we hear these justices speak, it's a little jarring. I'll say it. I agree with Tina to hear the author of the majority opinion in literally what will be one of the most controversial decisions in history sort of rub it in. Uh, to people who are unhappy
0: with that decision, and that's exactly what I'm seeing. I mean, it's a little bit of I'm going to throw a little sand in your eye, and it's not it's not a good look, right? It's not a it's not a good thing for a justice to do. And on the other side, you got two other justices. I think they all respect each other, and they're and they're you know they're they're all of the elite, you know in terms of minds. I mean, they they really have studied the law, and they just have a fundamental difference growing up of what is at the foundation of what they believe. And I found that with justices or, or judges that I disagree with, right? But I think what Justice Barrett and Sotomayor did is more than that. I, I think there's a political aspect to this. I think they're a little bit more looking forward and saying, you know what? I don't want to create all this divisiveness among the community. And I want to show that even though we disagree, we get along and from a political standpoint, I mean, there's been threats on these justices' lives and stuff based on some of these decisions. That was the smartest thing they could do to say, look, I respect the person across the aisle because they need to protect each other at this point. I mean, there's this is a decision that's created great anger and outrage. Why is a justice? Would you want to throw some more sand in the eyes of the people that are angered and outraged? Makes no sense. Jacob, what's your take on that?
8: Yeah, you know, I I share the same views that you guys have expressed. It's hard to interpret Alito's comments as anything other than him taking a victory lap. And when you're supposed to be an impartial arbiter of the Constitution of the highest court of the land, uh, you really—I mean—you're restoring the status quo to what things should be, how the Constitution should work. When you issue an order, make a decision. Why would that be something that would necessitate a victory lap? It suggests that, you know, you're motivated by something else, perhaps to many people. And I think, you know, the reception to his comments as they were described, you know, seems that they took it that way in person. On the other hand, I think, you know, these these this statement from Sotomayor and Barrett about how collaborative that they're working is, I think, very heartening, especially in the wake of what we saw with Dobbs and the leak of this draft opinion, I think a lot of people formed a belief based on that draft coming out that there wasn't this kind of internal discussion that was happening within the Supreme Court and among the justices, that you would get these inflammatory uh, you know, opinions that would be written and that was sort of going to be it. And then they would stack up along the perceived party lines and having the statement that pulls back the curtain a little bit more about the process that happens within the court I think, you know, is an important step, although probably a relatively small one to repair some of the, you know, damaged, uh, you know, loss of credibility that some people feel the court has suffered. Some of the harms that people are perceiving or feeling as a result from this opinion and restoring a little bit of insight into how the process works, I think, is an important step to undoing that.
1: Let's stick with the Supreme Court, Tina, but move on to Justice Clarence Thomas, who will not be teaching a law seminar at George Washington this fall.
2: Yeah, Joe. So news broke last week that Justice Thomas is not going to be teaching constitutional law. He's been teaching it since 2011 at GW with Gregory Mags, and apparently um, he isn't going to be teaching. And Greg Mags sent an email to students who are registered to attend the class, stating that the justice is not available. And not only that, but he's no longer even listed as a lecturer on GW Law's course list. This, of course, is on the heels of the Dobbs decision at the end of June and Thomas's highly controversial concurring opinion, which then triggered more than 11,000 community members signing a petition demanding that Justice Thomas be removed from GW Law. Officials from the law school are refusing um, to comment on this particular issue about whether or not they wanted to remove him. They just simply refuse to remove him. Justice Thomas has also declined to comment. Um, GW law leadership did come out and say that um, Justice Thomas's views are not those of the law school or the university as a whole, Um, But that it is important to have people like Justice Thomas at the law school to um, foster the exchange of ideas and debate, which is essential to the university's educational mission. So, Rich, I think we all know what really happened here, um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if Justice Thomas ever makes his way back to the law school. But we will definitely not be seeing him before year end.
3: Law schools are profit centers, Tina, um, as we've covered before, and they have to, they're a business, they have to operate like a business. And as any business operates, if your constituents don't want to shop there, if they don't want to use your services, you've got to react. So I think I disagree with what the university did as much as I you know, think that Clarence Thomas teaching constitutional law is, is a bit of a, a scary thing that I would not uh, go to myself I think, you know, this is a uh, a sign of woke culture gone awry. And this is especially true on college campuses everywhere. I mean, college students should be exposed to all sorts of opinions, even ones they disagree with, especially ones they disagree with, right? And for the university to support this, it's one thing to sign a petition. You can sign a petition for anything. But for the university to react the way they did and also say that, you know, his opinions don't reflect those of the law school. They're a law school. They're supposed to be a, you know... A a marketplace of all sorts of different ideas, especially one from a sitting Supreme Court justice, no matter how wrong you think that person is. So I think it's really reactive. I think it's a big mistake and a bad sign. Jacob, where do you stand on that? Yeah, you know, it's, I I, I kind of
8: find myself at the crossroads there in, in some similar ways to what you just said. It obviously would be an incredible opportunity to learn constitutional law from a sitting Supreme Court justice, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity for those students. But on the other hand, you know, an awful lot of them expressed that they didn't want him there, and he seems to have made himself unavailable in response to that, perhaps. Uh, but it seems like most of the people who would be involved in that class have decided that they didn't want him there. Uh, I, I agree that the university probably didn't need to chime in on top of that, given how things shook out. Uh, if you've got uh, more or less a consensus on that particular issue, with him declaring himself unavailable shortly after you have thousands of people signing the petition to have him not participate. I don't know that you need to tag uh, tag along on that any further with, you know, saying he doesn't represent our views or anything like that. It seems to me that that would be the way to resolve the issue and just unfortunately move on.
3: Kevin, speaking of taking the you know taking the win and not taking a victory lap like we did with Alito, I mean Thomas was not happy with just overturning Roe. He went on to say, as we as Tina referenced in his concurring um, uh, opinion, that. The right to privacy doesn't exist not only with reproductive rights, but all sorts of other rights. And he says that we should reopen all sorts of other precedent. So with that in mind, I'm surprised that he would have backed down. you think that he would have
0: fought given how much he went out on a limb in Dobbs. Well, the last thing he'd want to do is get egg on his face and have a university say you're not invited back, right? That so usually when somebody says I'm electing not to come back, it's it's after a nice long frank discussion where somebody says I elected not to come back. Look, from I would love to sit in on that class. I'll never forget my con law class, and you know I had a comment. I raised my hand and I talked, and I enjoyed con law. And I talked to my professor, and I and I looked at him and I said, "Come on, this decision." I forget which one we were talking about it. I said, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't follow star decisis. It doesn't follow the rule of law. It seems like a political whim or whatever of what's going on in the in the society at the time. And he looked at me and he said, well, are you telling me on the test that you're going to write down that this is all a bunch of political BS? And that's how they came up with the answer. And he says, because if you are, you're going to get an F. So we got to figure out a reason why they came up with the decision and find some logic to it. And I, you know, I kind of took a breath back and said, wow, that's really an enlightening thing to learn about our Supreme Court. They find reasons to justify their answers legally. But if you're going to teach a con law class that is supposed to follow the previous rule of law of the the other justices and history of star decisis, and you don't follow any of it and come up with no real good reason for changing something, how are you going to teach that class at least from the liberal side how are you going to teach that class to say yeah we follow precedent well, you say well now it's all out the window we start over there's there's you don't have to look it's whatever the current justices feel should be ruled upon is the way we go whether you agree or disagree with every side of the decision it you gotta have a reasonable, rational basis for what you do. You can say modern society has changed, or you know, reproductive issues have changed, or you can have a reason because our societies change after 50 years, but you can't just come up with, well, somebody else was wrong and they sat in the same position as me after how many years. You just it's not the right way to conduct con law or to have our Supreme Court doing decisions as a general rule, come up with a reason, come up with a logical reason. At least that's the liberal side view of that. As, as a lawyer, I got to follow the decisions that you know the justices above us rule. But um, I, I'd like to see better reasoning if you're going to start changing the rules.
1: I think I might have an idea of who our next, one of our next guests might be on the next legal face-off. Tina, our buddy Alan Dershowitz claims he's being silenced.
2: Yeah, so I was actually thinking the same thing, Joe, that it's been a while since we've had the Dersh, and this may be a good reason to have them. So last week, Dersh again claimed um, that when he started to defend President Donald Trump, that he started getting canceled on Martha's Vineyard, and these cancellations continue. Now he has threatened to sue the Chilmark Free Library on the basis that the library is denying his request to hold a book talk. He recently has released a book and he says he's not being allowed to talk about it at the local library, even though they are taxpayer funded. And as far as he's concerned, people really want to hear him speak. He actually compared the situation to a McCarthyite blackball. He also claimed that his defense of former President Trump has been confused with supporting Trump's politics. And those two are distinct, and that has led to him being shunned. Now, when we hear from the director of the library, Ebba Hirta, she says she used to invite Dirsch to speak until the number of people who came out to hear him speak caused a safety hazard. Dirsch says he doesn't believe that um, excuse, and he said that anybody who does believe it, he has an ocean in South Beach to sell them. Hirta also claims that she's received hate mail. She's had to install burglar bars on her bedroom window because of the situation. And Dersh says he's not particularly sympathetic to this and she should get a different job if she can't take the heat. So Dersh has claimed and has threatened that he will sue not only Hirta individually, but also the library. Hirta says she's tired of Dersh's bullying tactics tactics and he never really sells many books anyway. Dersh says he's going to push this as far as he needs to to protect free speech. So rich, I really think we should hear Dersh's side of the story it's coming soon on a, a legal face off.
3: I and mean, the good news is, you know Dershowitz writes a book every other day. Uh, so if this book doesn't get, uh, him some play with the library, then inevitably there's another one coming, you know, in a week or so, the guy is uh, incredibly prolific in writing quick books as we've covered on the show many times. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I think the, you know, the overall issue with Dershowitz is he has been canceled basically. I mean, you know, he was a respected, um, thought leader was a respected legal mind for years and years. And then in recent years, uh, in the wake of his association with Trump and, um, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, he's just been canceled. That's the way it goes. You know, he could sue all, all day long, um, but uh, he has been basically canceled. Um, I'm not sure what the legal remedy for that is, Kevin, uh, but that's that's just how culture changes sometimes.
0: You know, he he has every right to have his own opinion, to say what he wants to say, and you, you have every right to, de- everyone deserves a defense. So it doesn't matter if you're President Trump it doesn't matter if you're John Wayne Gacy it doesn't matter you know that you committed mass murders you're entitled to a defense right so i don't fault the guy and i don't think anyone else should fault the guy for defending somebody even if you don't agree with the person they're defending i think where everyone got wound up is again we're back to the specifics right did you make proper legal arguments did you argue appropriate things and when i read things and hear things that he said like You know, you can abuse public office as long as it helps your reelection campaign (laughs) when he when he's making comments that that's what he thinks the law is. Some people look and say, you know, is he is he still talking logically under the law or is he just making up arguments now um, related to a client that's indefensible? So, you know, from that standpoint, should they shun him? Probably not. Do they have the right to? Yeah, probably do. You know, I mean, just like you can invite anybody you want to speak and you may not agree with them. You know, I think they're doing themselves a disservice. If you pick a guy like him who's controversial that, you know, everyone's going to show up to hear what he has to say. It's kind of like the talk show host that created that great havoc. Right. That Everyone wants to listen just to hear what they're going to say next. I, I'd be curious to hear what he had to say if I was passing by and heard he was at the library. I'd be like, let's hear what he has to say next, because even if it's outrageous, it's something you want to hear. So they're probably doing themselves a disservice. Can he sue? You can sue over anything. Um, is he going to win? I mean, that's a whole nother unlikely scenario. I think they have the right to call whatever guests they want, as long as it's not discriminatory. And I don't as last I checked, he's not a he's not a suspect class. So I don't think he's going to get any special rights.
1: Show hosts that create chaos. I have no idea what you're talking about, Kevin. Uh, Let's move over to Philadelphia, Tina, where one family accused a parade of employing racist mascot workers. And then many other families followed with the same claim.
2: Yeah, Joe, so on the heels of being sued for alleged discrimination against two black girls, Sesame Place in Philadelphia is again being sued for discrimination. In this latest case, the plaintiffs are Baltimore residents Quentin Burns and his five-year-old daughter, who allege that various performers that they encountered at Sesame Place back in June, including the telemonster and Elmo, refused to engage with his daughter and other Black children in the same way that these mascots were engaging with other numerous white children. The plaintiffs are seeking at least $25 million in damages from the owner of Sesame Place, which is SeaWorld, on behalf of all Black people who visited the theme park since July of 2018 and who suffered similar treatment. The lawsuit claims a breach of contract and also that Sesame Place knew that its employees were engaging in racially biased behavior. Apparently, at least 150 families have come forward since this lawsuit was filed claiming similar mistreatment. There's apparently a video that's been released um, that shows the snubbing and shows the various mascots and how they were interacting with certain children, but not the plaintiffs. In a statement, Sesame Place said it's reviewing the lawsuit, is committed to delivering an inclusive experience for all guests, and that actually the costume design may be to blame, given that sometimes it's hard for the performers to see, and they seem to be intimating that it's because some of the performers were having a hard time seeing that they may not have seen These particular children trying to interact with them, they've also they've also issued an apology and said that they're going to be instituting mandatory training for their employees. So, Rich, I never thought that uh, the Sesame Street characters would be accused of such a thing, but it's a pretty compelling and interesting set of facts here. At least in my opinion, I'm sure you'll disagree I, with me. I
3: don't think it's compelling. Yeah, I, I don't think it's compelling at all. I mean, what's compelling is the, the story, right? I mean, that's that's interesting for sure, but I don't think the facts uh, illustrate even uh, any semblance of of racism. I mean,
2: well, what about the I, videos?
3: I saw I mean the video the video. The, the, the park explains the video as the character was being offered to hold a baby and wave the baby away. These are these are big furry characters. They don't have hands. They can barely see. You know, have you ever been on one side inside one? I mean, it's like a million degrees in there. So to allege that there's a pattern of racism among mascots at the amusement park without actual proof of it. I mean, we're not talking about one family. As you mentioned, we're talking about what 150 150-
2: over 150 families.
3: I mean you know, listen, I, we've covered lots and lots of stories on this show and had many guests who are fighting uh, against racism every day. And uh, I, command, I, I commend those people. And we, we've shown we've you know, been able to have a lot of coverage on our show about them. I don't think this is the case. I think, you know, before you allege racism, you have to have some something more than this. This video can be explained logically by a million different ways. It's a mascot, right? I mean, what would be the motivation for mascots to be racist? It's it's a little strange. And also, uh, they're looking for twenty five million dollars in damages. I mean, uh, th- th- was the child who was snubbed did that kid suffer you know irreparable emotional harm? I mean, I take my kids to uh, amusement parks when they were little. They didn't always get a chance to you know high five or hug a mascot. Was that racist? Or you know, did I seek damages for it? I think it's a little silly, to be honest, with all due respect to anyone who, who's filing the lawsuit. But uh, Jacob, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, Rich, so I, I can talk a little bit about this since
8: uh, I'm in Philadelphia. This is pretty much right in my backyard. And I also have a toddler. So I get a lot of Sesame Street exposure, exposure in my day to day. And uh, you know a couple things about how this story developed stood out to me as it was happening. You know in the first instance, you have this, this, this one occurrence that came out and started going viral and started getting publicity. And immediately after that happened, Sesame uh, Place came out and gave an apology uh, and also an explanation and didn't really stick the landing with that. And I think you saw right away the risk, the risk that can happen. In these sort of public relations emergencies, because immediately after that, there was this wellspring of other people coming forward. Now we're up to 150 uh, saying similar things have happened to them and their kids. And while I hear what you're saying that you know, not getting hugged by Elmo is probably not a 25 million dollar claim. You really do need to appreciate that, you know, these are little kids and almost probably the most important thing in the world to them. And to the parents to have their kids have the opportunity to be there with Rosita and all those other furry monsters, you know, it's going to be emotionally charged. So when you pair you know, a failure to really nail your, your apology, your explanation with a high traffic environment where there's tons of interactions between these people and these characters, you know, tens of thousands a day, probably. But every day for years, you have a huge risk there that you have to deal with. And I think we're seeing again with, you know, I haven't reviewed these 150 families that have come forward. You know, there's just going to be people who feel like that has happened to them and when you're operating a park like that that has that sort of emotional charge associated with it you really need to be you know aware of the risk that can exist for you because regardless of whether or not you know these underlying claims uh, have merit Uh, or what the motivation of the person in the costume was, it's going to be a long and ugly process to get through them. And that train has left the station and it's not stopping now. So, you know, we've got protesters who are out there every day. People are really emotionally invested in this process. And I think a lot of that has to do with some missteps that happened uh, in the immediate, you know, aftermath of this first story coming out. Um, So, you know, I I hear what you're saying, but, but I also do think that all of these plaintiffs and protesters and people who feel like they really have
0: been wronged, I see where they're coming from. I feel like I really have to comment on this one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, do, I do plaintiffs or the people injured, civil rights work all the way around the country. And I, and I got to tell you, in this particular case, I, I sometimes fault my colleagues because I think people approach it the wrong way. So coming out with this twenty five million dollar lawsuit is really going to hurt the claims. What really should because you can't wait four years for these young kids who feel snuffed or or feel traumatized by this to wait for the civil process to happen and then throw some money at them. They should have come together, got with the park, had some changes made, did some special things for minority kids or whatever to make them feel included right away yeah, if they have to pay a certain amount of money down the road, sure, they're not going to get $25 million. But the damage to be corrected needed to be done right away. And they needed to take action. And us as lawyers need to try and get people to take action right away after something like this happens to try and help the, the people that are hurt. Um, I, I've done it with cases I had with Cities and municipalities and people have a heart. Generally, if you sit down with them and you give an explanation, my two-year-old, you know, loves Elmo and lives Elmo and everything in their room is Elmo. You got to fix this now. They'll usually fix it now. And and I feel like a little bit of this politicalized aspect and the filing of a lawsuit and putting the twenty-five million dollar number up there is going to hurt the cause. And there's a problem there, but it's it needs to get fixed at the ground level among people.
1: Rich, we were following the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trials along pretty closely. Now we're finding out more about the attorneys.
3: Yeah, well, uh, Camille Vasquez, who uh, is perhaps the most uh, famous lawyer in the world right now, uh, as one of the lead lawyers defending Depp and getting Depp uh, the victory, she gave an interview last week. And of course, because this is the most watched history, literally in in uh, in uh, or the most watched trial in history, I should say. Whenever they speak, it's newsworthy. What uh, What interested me, Tina, about the interview she gave with Gail King last week was um, how young the attorneys were. I don't think you know. I think we both, we all knew Camille Vasquez was was under forty, and you know Ben Chu was a veteran lawyer, but they also had you know five associates who were all under forty on the defense team, and not just sort of behind the scenes doing research, as is common. But taking, you know, real uh, leadership in the defense of Johnny Depp or in the prosecution of Amber Herb, Amber Herb, whatever you look at it. Um, I have forgotten, for example, that Johnny Depp's direct was done by another young female on the team. I think she was 34. So, you know, fairly unusual. They explained that they're in the best position to take leads in these kind of cases because of the issues involved in this case. Involved, you know, young people as litigants and a lot of social media. So, Tina, are we getting passed by by the younger <laughs> members of our profession? That's that's worrisome. Jacob's taking over.
2: Well, you know, it's an interesting point, Rich, and I think it's probably part of the natural evolution of folks like you and I who've been doing this for a really long time. I also think it's great because these folks are incredibly capable. I do think that there is something to what they said about. Um, you know, given who the litigants were and just who the people were in particular paying attention to this trial, um, given that things like social media um, were involved. And I think also, um, you know, these folks learned from some really good people. They are on their own. They are very capable people and are on a steep trajectory in their career. But it makes me really happy to see that folks like this, they're the next generation. Um, they're the or they're the current generation on the younger end of the spectrum, and I think it's wonderful to see.
3: Kevin, you're a young attorney. Um, uh, are you and <laughs> your your generation? <laughs> um, yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, on this? Do you turn over major cases to to younger
0: folks? No, and they didn't turn over this case to younger folks either. Don't don't kid yourself. So every word, every question, every everything was not only asked; it was written out for them. It was gone through with, um, you know, mock juries. Uh, you know, we do this all the time. There there wasn't a question that they asked that they came up with themselves. Highly unlikely, just between you and I, but. On the other aspect of this, this was a case that was tried in the, the public opinion, right? It was tried with people that tweet and, you know, all the things I don't know how to do that my kids do, right? So what is the best thing you could do? Put somebody in there that is going to be tweet worthy or, you know, whatever that, you know, the public's going to relate to. It was a brilliant move from the defense or prosecution team, you know, that firm put the younger generation in there because everything you heard about that case was coming through the younger generation talking about it on their iPhones, right? I mean, that's what was happening. So in that sense, it was a brilliant move because that case was tried in public opinion on a day-to-day basis.
3: Jacob, how soon until we see uh, Camille Vasquez with her own talk show, her own judge show, maybe Judge Camille, uh, start, Gail King suggested that she should start her own firm. She just made partner in the wake of the debt victory. What's next for Camille Vasquez?
8: Well, you know, I'm sure that she is uh involved in some negotiations both in her firm and elsewhere about what her future is going to be like. Cause it seems like after that and all the publicity she's got, she can pretty much write her own ticket. I think, you know, the sky's the limit for her, along with you know, a lot of the other great young attorneys we've seen uh, in that case. But but you know the thing that this uh, this case in particular and the the now attention that's getting paid to the legal team raises for me that I'm interested in is is it going to change the way that jurors uh, interact with the attorneys in a given trial? Right? Everybody you know thinks that the case is getting tried on the facts before the jurors. Sure, but it's also happening within you know a larger cultural moment, and now that that seems to be shifting toward you know, even away from the litigants who obviously got a ton of attention in this case and now to the legal team that was involved in, uh, in the case itself, is that going to have, you know, ripples for the profession going forward? Are we going to um, expect a legal team uh, to look like a, have a certain composition, approach things in a certain way? Is that all going to be driven by the TikTok algorithm? I mean, I don't know, but given the amount of attention that's been paid to this, I think it's a reasonable question to ask whenever you're impaneling a journey and going forward, you know, what are they going to expect from, you know, the attorneys based on what they've seen in these giant high profile cases? And I think, you know, these particular attorneys in this case are going to be a big part of setting those expectations going forward. Don't sleep on the young people.
1: <laughs> you might walk yourself into a lawsuit, which brings yeah, us I, to the next topic. Uh, I think Yvonne Barbosa captioned it best by labeling it, just stop it, just stop it. Uh, one fired employee claims sleepwalking is why they entered their co-worker's hotel room and just walk
3: their way into a lawsuit.
2: Yeah, Joe. So last month, the Fifth Circuit. Also known
3: as the Joe Brand defense, by the way. <laughs>
1: I I would never, I I don't sleep. So that's my main uh, alibi right there.
2: So last month, the Fifth Circuit ruled against Jennifer Harkey, who, as Joe mentioned, was fired after sleepwalking into her colleague's bed in a next door hotel room. So this crazy story starts back in 2018 when Harkey was attending a national sales conference in St. Louis. At midnight, she was in her, her, her hotel room, and she left her hotel room and knocked on the hotel room door of a fellow employee who was also at the conference, and that employee happened to be male and opened the door thinking it was a buddy of his that he had been hanging out with at the bar. He didn't recognize Harkey and told her that she was in the wrong room and told her that she needed to leave. But she was unresponsive and instead walked over to his bed and got under the covers. She was unresponsive to any of his requests to leave. And he then called his supervisor, who, of course, then brought in the director of HR, who also tried to wake her up but couldn't. She finally woke up on her own and she was disoriented and she was escorted back to her room. And it was then that she claimed that she had a problem with occasionally sleepwalking, which she's apparently done since she was young. She was placed by HR on unpaid leave, saw her doctor, and then confirmed through her doctor that she was suffering from a sleepwalking disorder and was fired less than a week later. Turkey sued and claimed that she was wrongfully terminated uh, and that her sleepwalking should be covered by the ADA and the Texas Commission on Human Rights Act. Both the lower court as well as the Fifth Circuit found that found against her and granted summary judgment. And they said that the critical question here, Rich, was whether... She was was whether she suffered the actual adverse employment action, which here was termination because of her disability. And the court found that she didn't get terminated because she was sleepwalking, that her termination was because of what she did while she was sleepwalking. So anyway, uh, interesting case. Um, I can't say that I necessarily disagree with the decision here. What do you think, Rich?
3: I think Ben should insert uh, porn music in the background as we discuss this story. I mean, I've seen some some bizarre excuses for coming onto a coworker before, but but come on, wait a second. So she's she puts on a black robe, not and and knocks on the door of her coworker, gets in the bed, and that's all sleepwalking. Convenient that she happened to only knock on the door of this you know coworker who was, who was next door, and yeah, um, no, sorry. <laughs> Uh, just, just take the L, just admit that, you know, you were interested in this fella and that he rejected you and, you know, uh, chalking up to, to sleep. Well, I mean, there's a common theme here, uh, to a uh, lack of personal responsibility in some of these stories. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it was the right decision by the fifth circuit. Kevin, you might disagree.
0: No, not necessarily on this one. I mean, it, you know, it, there's a defense and then there's a defense. And, you know, I've heard this story before, but it's usually the opposite way, right? It's the 50 year old guy and the 30 year old coworker. And he says, I wasn't trying to grab her. I have, I have early onset of Parkinson's. My hand was just wiggling and I happened to grab her. Right. I mean, How many excuses are you going to come up with? I mean, I would be curious to know if alcohol was involved, if she had uh, a few things of alcohol before she decided to go to sleep that evening. Um, You know, you you can create a disability. Somebody has to discriminate against you because of your disability, not you, you can't use your disability as a basis of saying I can do inappropriate behavior. I mean, that's that's the whole next level where, you know, oh, I have a disability. So, you know, I can run you over with my wheelchair. It doesn't quite add up. Right. I mean, that that doesn't add up. So. Her actions have to she has to be accountable for. So I, I, I'm not even going to defend this one, no matter how liberal you think I am. Right. <laughs> <laughs> come quickly on this one, agree or disagree with the Fifth Circuit?
8: Yeah, I mean, I think this is one where they just didn't buy it from start to finish and made a decision that made sure it went away. I mean, you know, a lot of coincidences play; would have had to have happened for it to have been that exact series of events driven entirely by sleepwalking. You know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but obviously the fifth circuit wasn't buying it.
3: Maybe Elmo, Joe could claim sleepwalking and as a defense to <laughs> the other story, see how I brought it back. All so, back. Kim yeah. Colbert.
1: That's, that's like uh, stand-up comedy 101, on one Rich. You're, you're right. In the way. I mean, that's perfect. Uh, we're going to finish the legal grab bag with a bittersweet story. I always thought that Skittles tasted like the rainbow. But apparently, they taste a little bit more like titanium dioxide.
3: Richard. It tastes like poison. Apparently, um, yeah. I mean, Kevin will have to have to defend this one for sure. But uh, who knew that uh, candy like Skittles contains bad stuff for you? But if you follow this lawsuit, it's more than just bad stuff, Tina. It's uh, titanium dioxide, which uh, is could be a carcinogen, according to the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Uh, It's been classified as a possible carcinogen. It should be noted, though, that 11,000 other foods include this product in uh, their ingredients as a food color additive. Uh, So, again, there's a class action lawsuit against Mars saying that Skittles are unsafe for human consumption. Um, We've seen, Tina, many lawsuits. We've covered many lawsuits involving allegations against some of our favorite food products often they're that they're the lawsuits involve allegations that they're too small, too big, too airy, not airy enough, not long enough, et cetera. Um, but uh, are Skittles bad for you?
2: Tina? Who knew? <laughs> Skittles are candy, right? And then ultimately on the titanium dioxide issue, Mars is claiming that they are, you know, complying with the FDA regulations on this. And in this country, we have, um, you know, FDA to help us figure these sorts of things out. And I think a lot of substances, you know, when you get past a certain quantity can be harmful or carcinogenic. But in this instance, Mars claims that they're well within the law and the legal parameters for this particular compound.
3: Uh, Jacob, have you tasted a Skittle? Of course they're bad for you. Of course there's, cra- I assume that there's carcinogens in anything that's good for you. So that's part of the assumption of risk when you pop one of those into your mouth. That's what, that's what I'm saying. So I'm, no, I, I'm I'm I, just screaming to the jury. There's Skittles for Christ's sake. What do you expect?
8: I should probably recuse myself from this one because I have got just a huge bowl of candy right here on my desk and Skittles are on the very top of
3: it. Um, you know, no, I when no, you, you're ground your ground zero for COVID with that bowl um, of, of um, candy that you're sharing with your coworker. Um, well, first of all, they're all individually wrapped.
8: So Honestly. this is a droplet-free zone here. And the the assumption that I'm sharing it with my coworkers very generous and I appreciate it of you, but let's not jump to any conclusion about who's eating all that candy. I'm practically more titanium dioxide than man by now based <laughs> on how much <it's> <laughs> Um, no, but I mean, I, I actually, when I saw this topic, I did a little reading about the science behind it. And, you know, it seems like, like what Tina said, it's not, it's not, it's certainly not settled that the amount of titanium dioxide that's in Skittles is any more or less dangerous than it is in anywhere else. But unfortunately for Mars, you know, France and now the EU has determined that they're not going to allow products with titanium dioxide in it anymore. And maybe the trickiest thing for them is Titanium dioxide just sounds like something you shouldn't be eating. It just sounds bad. And whenever you have an uphill battle with something with a name like that, you're putting in your food, you know, maybe it's a little tougher than it could be otherwise. But I, I mean, I guess it could be worse. They could have discovered that it was some of the Subway tuna, maybe not tuna, that was in the Skittles. But I'm glad that those cases haven't crossed over yet.
3: Kevin, the EU, starting next week, is banning this product in food.
0: So... Uh, apparently Americans love eating carcinogens, but Europeans don't. Well, product liability cases are based on state of the art. Look, they've known since 2016 that this has this bad product in there. What is it? People sit down in a boardroom and say, we like our shiny Skittles. I mean, it's what makes them shiny and look pretty. If we don't make them shiny and look pretty, people aren't going to buy as many. They made a conscious decision. It's a bad decision ultimately, or maybe, right? We're going to find out. Um, but they made that decision that says we'll defend the lawsuits. I can't tell you how many cases I've had with product liability cases where I unearthed the actual internal memos where they said, we're going to get lawsuits on this. We'll deal with the lawsuits. We're going to make a gazillion dollars off of selling this product over the next five years. We'll we'll deal with the lawsuits when they come down the line. If they're going to do that, then they got to pay the price. Look, if you know you got a carcinogen in your food, you know that it's being eaten by children. I mean, it may not affect adults the same way when the FDA is regulating, but you're feeding these things to kids that are shiny and bright and little objects that are sweet tasting. We're, we're running into a problem. Once you learn that something's a carcinogen, you got to take some action to at least investigate, change, make it the safe for human consumption. If, it's, if it turns out ultimately to be safe, they'll win their lawsuit, right? But if it's not, they're going to pay a heavy price because they've known for too many years.
3: All right, quickly, around the horn, favorite candy besides carcinogen lace Skittles. Let's go from uh, top to bottom. Tina,
0: favorite candy of all time?
2: Tough, but I'd say Snickers.
0: Love a Snickers. Kevin? Lately, I've been converted to Rolos. I mean, the Ooh. caramel coming out of the chocolate is just something a little different. Delicious. Jacob?
8: Starburst, no doubt about it. Give me the whole pack. Nice. Joe? Candy,
1: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, Candy Bar, Payday. Not sorry.
3: Uh, my favorite is uh, Canadian chocolate, of course, Smarties. Now, don't confuse Smarties with an American junk you guys have that's also called Smarties. Smarties are kind of a Canadian MM, absolutely delicious.
2: I'm very glad to hear that you don't mean the Smarties that we know of on this side of know, the border. Are, no,
1: I, I don't. They're like but... coated in maple syrup and
3: healthcare. Smarties, Arrow, Coffee Crisp. Uh, crunchy, Coffee,
2: crisper, great
3: whole bevy of Canadian treats.
1: Well, that's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag and the Legal Face-Off podcast. Big thanks to our panelists today of Kevin O'Connor and Jacob Sand. Also to our guests earlier on in the show, Senator Yoder, Benita Joseph and Patrick Cotter. For our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson. And don't forget to like, subscribe and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. Do us a favor and rate us five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Hopefully, more candy talk, more Johnny Depp talk, and maybe even Alan Dershowitz. We'll talk to you next time. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Cover in Sports Hollywood and don't forget the.